We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond. And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. Uh, I'm Ed Cowstry, and I'm here with my other host for the day, David. David, how are you? Hi, Ed. Very well, thank you. So it's my first time as a host today. Um, I was interviewed a few months ago together with Aoife. We talked about our PhDs, but today I'm joining as a host. He's taking over as one of our regular hosts. So, yeah, welcome back to the podcast. Um, and today um, we are joined uh, with our guest, Ellen Pasternak, who is a PhD student in evolutionary biology at the University of Oxford, uh, as well as being a science writer for outlets such as Unheard and Works in Progress. Um, and we're going to chat to her on the podcast today about one of her recent articles for Works in Progress, which is titled uh, The Stats Gap. And this explores the issues with statistical education for university scientists. Uh, Ellen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So the stats gap, um, it, the clue's in the name, but <laughs> what, is, what is the stats gap and why is it important? The stats gap is what I'm calling the um, gap between the level of understanding of statistics that you get from undergraduate education and the level that you actually need for using statistics for real life data rather than a textbook example yeah and um we, we were discussing before the yeah. podcast started about how big of a deal this yeah. might be especially depending on the field mm. i mean you and i are both biologists david what, what would you say your research specialism is well yeah <laughs> now i'm i'm a data scientist slash software engineer but my background is in aeronautical engineering and when I read through um, the article that um, Ellen wrote, uh, I really felt uh, reflected <laughs> because it's something that I um, also experienced. So I feel like uh, that stats gap exists in in more mathematical, mathematically oriented subjects like engineering as well. I wouldn't say it's um, your your background is in biology, but I wouldn't say it's just in biology. I think that it's also the case in in um, in, su in subjects such as engineering. I don't know what the situation is like in physics, for example. I am assuming in maths it's... Uh, <laughs> it's not it's, quite such an issue, yeah. It's not quite <laughs> such an issue, but it definitely is an issue in engineering, um, considering especially now that um, we're getting so much more data in mm. academic engineering from um, both experiments and computations, because experiments are becoming much more sophisticated and we're able to get much more data out of our experiments. And the same thing happens with uh, simulations using supercomputers where uh, we're, from one simulation you could be getting hundreds of gigabytes yeah. of data. And it's how to process that data and how to actually extract all the knowledge that is there. Because there is a lot happening. Yeah. It's just that we just maybe don't have the knowledge to extract everything that is hidden in that sea of numbers. And, and really like pretty much science is in the world of big data now so it's not just like the tech companies but like research science you might be dealing with a, yeah a lot of big data and having a like strong understanding of not just which stats tests to use that other people may have half explained to you mm. but 
why they're used yeah, is important. Yeah, it's definitely why, I think. Because I think if you don't really understand what you're doing, if you've just been taught at university, like, oh, these are the commands that you should type into your software, mm. then when something goes wrong, which it definitely will, when, <laughs> when you're using um, something that's not a textbook example, yeah. then you're not really equipped to understand why and to troubleshoot. And I think everyone's, I mean, maybe some people understand it much better <laughs> than um, than I appreciate, but um, I think lots of people are just kind of making it up as they go along. Also kind of slightly, slightly trying to hide that worrying that they're the only one who doesn't understand it. It's, it, it's interesting and like one of the reasons which I thought um, this article was so interesting is that, that you highlighted this problem of just like amongst yeah it, it makes sense when people you know you go to study biology you don't go mm-hmm. to like learn stats mm-hmm. um we, like we're familiar as um people who work at the alan turing institute with a, a similar problem which is that if you go into yeah again biology or some other field of science mm-hmm. you don't necessarily uh, go there to learn how to code yeah and a big part of our job is either teaching people how to code who are scientists or like helping them with their research code but an equivalent doesn't really exist for, you know, statistics. Yeah. Although I will say at my university in Oxford, there is obviously, and I expect in most universities, a stats department where you can go with your problems. Okay. Um, but I think that's quite small and I think you also have to pay them for it. And, um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, I probably want to check that afterwards because it might not still be the same. <laughs> um, um, but um, but it's not the norm. Yes. I, remember the, I, yeah. tried to, I tried to ask them for help at one point and they said they weren't really sure how to help me and also they were booked up for several months so it wasn't right, that useful yeah, yeah. whereas what I'd love to see would be something like um, how in each department there's probably IT people that you can just go and poke your head in around the door or shoot them a quick email if you have an issue and someone will be able to help you really quickly it would be really nice if there were department statisticians that you could just on a very in a very informal way go and ask them for help and they'd be able to advise you and they're not associated with any particular research group or project uh yeah, they just yeah, help yeah. with everything and i think that would really really improve the quality of science that the whole department is producing and it will be also a more efficient allocation of talent as well because um if you just have you know one person who understands statistics in the department and they're in their group maybe their group is producing good research but instead mm-hmm. if you hire this person on a permanent basis as the stats person it would improve things for everyone yeah i mean one of the one of the challenges that we've sort of come across um, in our work, especially, and this is obvious for people who work in computer science, but it'll be obvious as well for people who are doing um, just like any area of science who uses stats, is that there is a problem in science in general of like replicability crisis. Definitely. In that like actually repeating other people's methods Mm. is really hard and and often just doesn't get done. Um, And I I have like, there's, there's one scare story that one of our colleagues told us about once, which was like, I think it was from Nature or Science, so like one of the big journals, and um, <laughs> like so uh, so so genes like have gene names which are normally like a few letters or yeah. numbers. Yeah, so it's common for biologists to be write, or geneticists to be writing papers which you know are quoting these gene names. But what a lot of them have done because they're not like us software engineers is and they don't know how to use something like Python or R is that they're using Microsoft Excel and (laughs) exactly yeah so apparently some like non-negligible high percentage of like top journal papers have like incorrect gene names that are the result of Excel um 
And it also hasn't gone down over time since the problem has been identified. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Going back to your point about having sort of a statistics uh, support group mm. in your team, I think that's, and comparing it to an IT mm. support team, I think it's um, it's a very good comparison because you could claim that um, not every IT knowledgeable person mm. is is prepared to work with IT systems with every department. But what usually happens in universities is that you have an IT person which works specifically in one department and therefore gets familiar with the software that is used in that particular yeah. field of research. So, for example, during my PhD in my department, which was an aeronautical engineering department, there was an, several IT people, but they were very familiar with the software that we tended to use. And, um, you know, they don't have all the details of how... Uh, fluid dynamics mm. works, but they have a general idea of what fluid dynamics is from just experience and working there for so many years. And then they sort of understand what problems engineers have and how they can solve those problems through IT, uh, yeah. through, mm. through specific software. So a similar thing could be done with statisticians where a statistician would be someone who is highly mathematically trained mm -hmm. um, they don't need to necessarily have uh, an in-depth knowledge in biology or engineering, but as long as they're familiar with, you know, the workflows and what type of data those biologists or those engineers or psychologists, whatever, are producing, mm. then, um, you know, they can support them in the correct way. Yeah. But it's also, it's good that they don't have to have the background in that specific subject because, you know, currently if you don't have a stats support team then all the statistics done in a biology department will be kind of by people who are primarily biologists and their interest is in biology and then hopefully they also have some understanding of statistics but it's not you don't have to have that um, selection first you could just go straight to people who are like primarily interested in statistics and would find it a kind of interesting yeah. job to work in a biology department they don't have to be primarily biologists yeah do you feel like when you are learning um the stats that you're supposed to use from the people in your own field that there's a certain amount of like inherit inherited um, sort of like accepted lack of knowledge. Yeah, maybe. Um, I do think I think the issue um, with stats teaching is maybe a bit more just that it's primarily a biology degree and not yeah not maths. Um, and so um, I um, I was lucky to have really good statistics teaching um, at school when I was doing A-levels because it was a core part of the maths curriculum. And um, that was very, you'd kind of, it was quite difficult, but by the end you would really understand like yeah, why yeah, things yeah. were a certain yeah. way and you'd be able to work it out by hand um, and, you know, derive the formula yourself and that kind of thing. And then I remember being kind of surprised and disappointed that at university it wasn't more of the same. It was kind of much larger groups and usually it, like in a lecture and I don't think a lecture is really well suited for teaching um teaching no, statistics yeah. really um yeah. I think you learn much better if it's more interactive and you kind of solve problems yourself and it's smaller groups, yeah, smaller groups. yeah. um yeah I, I feel like lectures are better suited for you know if you're just kind of trying to convey information rather than getting someone to quite thoroughly understand something that they might find difficult I suppose it's just you'd have to make it quite a priority to teach it in that much depth and that it's going to be competing with so many other things on the on the syllabus and also I think a lot of students just don't like it and they don't <laughs> they don't they don't want to have to yeah, do loads exactly. of maths 
um, that's not what they're there for. And lots of them, most of them aren't really going to need it in their future lives either. Yeah, I, I guess like this, the problem is not just at like undergraduate level, right? It's yeah. like actual research scientists, whether they are mm. PhD mm. candidates or whether they're, you know, postdocs with a, with a job and already mm. completed the PhD. I feel like... I don't know. Yeah, it's hard for me to judge how how big the scale of the problem is. Like, how how big would you say it is in in your respective fields? <laughs> That's really hard to judge. Um, I think it it really depends on kind of sub area as well. I think mm, yeah. Um, lots of lots of biologists are quite quantitatively minded, but um, if I was going to be mean, I would say that like even though I've just had a go mm. at geneticists, um, maybe they probably have better stats than say like marine biologists probably I would guess. yeah you know yeah if you go into marine biology you want to go and study coral and yeah, stuff yeah exactly you know? <laughs> i think i think it, yeah in um in marine biology or anything kind of ecology adjacent people go into it because they they love nature and they love animals and exactly yeah that's yeah. their main focus and and i feel like we should be able to say that's really good um that people have that and we yeah. can select for that separately from um being very kind of maths minded and interested in understanding it maths in depth yeah do, do you feel like that part of the blocker to like I mean yeah so part part of the blocker is 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 clearly not lack of interest in terms of like in, in a sort of dismissive way but like that's that's not why they got into this exactly yeah. in the first place but do you think there's also a, a, an element of like imposter syndrome at play like totally yeah yeah I think I think a lot of people are really 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 insecure about how little they understand um statistical yeah. methods and are yeah. slightly trying to con uh conceal that in a way um um i think that's really really common and i think it doesn't help because people talk about things in quite a vague way um yeah and yeah you'd be able to have much kind of clearer more open discussions that were more productive um in working out what's actually the best way to do something if if there were people who really if if we understood it better basically yeah it's interesting because the parallel again to like our world of software like we're, I was working with um, a PhD student the other day and like one of the things I was trying to encourage her to do was to like have her code backed up online so on a public we use the website github yeah. and it it and it was like oh she was like oh well I'll, I'll do it when it's finished and I was like no 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 I mean I mean obviously I tried to like explain to me it's like actually um it's good to do it now because like then other people can like comment on it and like give you help and like constructive criticism but then obviously there's like a sort of you know inherent oh well I'm not sure I want to be like have my yeah. stuff scrutinized right away that it's not finished but actually like um if we if we can all sort of like you know not be mean to each other about mm -hmm. it like that's how science should work yeah. like we want everything to be yeah. criticized as much possible as possible yeah. really um yeah and I think it also possibly means that things might not be peer reviewed as thoroughly as they could be if the reviewers right, don't exactly. really um yeah. speaking of criticizing things <laughs> yes if the reviewers don't really understand it either right so, so your suggestion is that like yeah if they have if um if you are say yeah marine biologist mm. and you happen to have done some like hardcore stats mm. on your coral counting mm -hmm. or whatever then the other marine biologists <laughs> will might think, not understand oh, it yeah yeah they'll be like <laughs> yeah. oh well that looks really smart yeah. you know that's so, yeah. or, or they'll be like yeah i just don't understand this yeah. i can't review it you know yeah mm, yeah perhaps really there should be problem. like um, a, st a specific statistician reviewer as well um, as yeah, like yeah. stats help in the department I, I, I don't have too much of a background in like um, academic science and mm. writing papers but I, I know from colleagues who are that 
you know, there are huge issues with the, <laughs> the scientific publishing, uh, like a, as an industry in of itself. And like, this is one of them, right? Mm. It's the having reviewers who are knowledgeable about what the subject and like able to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Actually, there is a line in, in your article that I really liked. Uh, I can't find it now. Oh. <laughs> but it said something about having basically these people who would work as a statistics support group within the university mm. would be people who are in general interested in science, mm. but they're not particularly interested in becoming uh, ex- yeah. huge experts in a very niche field. Totally, yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what we do in the research engineering group at the <laughs> Alan Turing Institute, don't you feel? Uh, exactly, yeah. This, yeah, this is what I was getting at before in that, like, this is, we do this for, for software, we don't necessarily do this for stats, mm. but... It's... Not necessarily for stat- stats. Although data but... science is basically kind of... Yeah, stats we're not going to get into adjacent. the... We're not going <laughs> to get into the debate of what data science is. Yeah. Because it's, it's a tough debate. But, um, no, I really... I, I think it's a, it's a great idea. And, um, as I said, I had a very similar experience during my PhD. And... Uh, yeah, I was also getting the same comment from a lot of people, like, you're doing a PhD in engineering, not maths, you know, so mm. it's like, ah, yeah, um, it, it's it's a very difficult problem to solve, and I think there is a mixture of problems, and uh, it's the um, imposter syndrome is definitely one of them. We shouldn't just blame uh, well-established academics um, for that, uh, in my opinion, um, because the amount of work they have is yeah. is actually unbearable, you know, and uh, someone who's been working in, in academia for the past, say, 30 years, and all of a sudden has to, you know, get up to date with all these new methods yeah. on yeah, top yeah. of managing yeah. all the workload they have at university. It's basically yeah. not possible, you know, like someone who has been doing maths and pen and paper for the past 30 years all of a sudden has to get familiar with all these new machine learning algorithms and whatever, you know, and yeah. all these different programming languages. Um, it's it's really tough. So we shouldn't blame them. Um, and it's true that that is more required implicitly from uh, new PhD students who are starting their PhDs, you know, in the, in the, in the recent years. Um, so, um, and 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 they don't have the knowledge necessarily because that's not something that is well taught in undergraduate uh, courses at university. So having someone with that background supporting an academic team would be very helpful. Yeah, and I mean you do have that in clinical trials, for instance. Um, like you can have a job as as a medical statistician or clinical trial statistician. So um, I feel like it's just a case of maybe convincing other fields that they ought to do that too I guess yeah. because with a clinical trial they have to <laughs> yeah obviously it, there's, it's very high stakes and also it's very very expensive so I guess they recognize the importance of really getting it right the first time mm. um whereas I think in other fields I mean it's kind of kind of what we think maybe this is before we were being recorded but about how the um incentives are kind of set up to produce content um rather than yeah, yeah, yeah. to efficiently answer questions. Whereas in, I suppose, in clinical trials, it's leaning a bit further towards... Actually uh, finding out yeah. whether a drug works or not. Because yeah. that's going to go into yeah. real people in the real yeah. world. I suppose a, pro- a big problem with a lot of research science, and it's not inherently a problem in, in of itself, because not all research science should be applied mm. science. Like, you've got to do mm. blue sky research that is, you know, 90% chance never going to have a real-world impact, but you do it so you can find the 10% that does. Yeah. Um, 
but what that what that means is that yeah it's not going to be held to the same standard as something like a clinical trial with regard to reproducibility yeah. and checking that yeah the stats mm. check out basically and that the cl- the conclusions in some particular phd students or or researchers yeah. um research is actually you know holds up to scrutiny yeah um i think it's probably very very easy for errors to slip through yeah having um actually maybe i should say that. <laughs> <laughs> have you got a horror story to no, I, was, I was just thinking like on my, on my viva i was quite um nervous about i don't know various things that i felt were the weaknesses and it just mm. didn't come up because each um each examiner would um like basically pick a couple of questions for each chapter and it didn't happen to be the things that i thought were the weaknesses all of the time um and that's i guess good. if you have this very long dense thing there's just not time to pick apart every single little yeah 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 issue and i i i feel the same um on the couple of occasions when i've been asked to review a paper um i'd kind of point to the things which i thought were the most glaring problems but um it's you can't really I, understand yeah, everything yeah exactly i i feel like if you yeah, there's, there's no way you could possibly catch everything. So I suppose yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, I'm talking about my experience yeah. now again <laughs> because I, I do I do relate mm. a lot. And I feel like like I have my vibe in a couple of weeks. Mm. And essentially... And we should say, yeah. just before you say that, like, congrats on passing your vibe. Right? Oh, thank you. You just told us before we started recording that you recently, recently passed. Um, and David, you've got yours in a couple of weeks. I've so. got mine in a couple of weeks, yeah. And I'm I'm going through it now. I'm reading it again. And I've written it. I mean, I was the one who wrote it. Yeah. And I'm reading it now and I'm like, it's, it's, it's pretty tough to read. <laughs> and, you know, it's taking me a long, mm. a long time to read it. So I've spent four years doing this thing. And, you know, there's so many things to think about. And, of course, you know, all the details. But how can someone reading your thesis in, in a month... Uh, in the evenings for a few hours, mm. like catch all those little, mm. especially in statistics, like in statistics mm. related subjects, right? It's it's so hard, especially if it's if it's not, um, um, let's say, uh, hard statistical science, but rather statistics applied to a different yeah. science. Um, and, you know, the people who are going to be reading your thesis are not um, heavy on statistics, but rather, you know, experts in engineering, for example. Mm. It's you know errors are going to slip through. There's no there's no chance that uh, they can catch everything. <laughs> That's how I see it. I wonder if there's like an issue with science in general. Then I mean, like mo- most papers are not as long as your PhD thesis, but like yeah, like the the joke, the refrain I've heard from other people who've done. I I haven't done a PhD, but from my colleagues who have done it is like, well, no one really reads your thesis anyway. <laughs> but, but but to be fair, it's not necessarily because of the, the content, but just because the length, right? It's just it's too long for people to read it. There's um, just too much for people to read in general that no one's yeah. going to read the majority of, I mean... Of research. Re- I mean, yeah. relative to the amount of effort that goes in, I feel like... Right, yeah. The effort that comes out in reading is probably... In, in to- total number of people that read it is probably much less. Yeah, yeah. And, and that would be true for, for papers as well. Yeah. E- e- even those papers which which do get read quite a bit. Yeah. It's still like like when I when I was doing mm. my master's degree, I remember one of the lecturers said like and he was I guess like thirty years older than me or something, and he was like, Well, when I started, mm. you could keep up to date with your entire field by just reading the journals mm. and like the rate of publication mm. was such that you could keep up with your entire field of what's going on. 
And he said, like, don't even try to do that now. <laughs> it's just, like, it's impossible. There's just too much research yeah. happening. Um, yeah, 100%. But so we've got to figure out a way of uh, <laughs> yeah. fixing that. In the, yeah. in the length of this podcast, we will fix uh, the science and publishing industry. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, it is interesting. Like, I, I wonder if the same approach that we're trying to get people to do with, with code of like, yes, you know, publish stuff in small bursts, you know, have things online as you're working on them so they can be scrutinized. I mean, there's... There's a there's a push in some areas of science towards like more open working and like doing things like yeah having your online notebooks and things like this. Do do you guys both did you experience this? I know obviously in our job, David, like we know all about this, but in your in your PhDs or places you've worked in academia, has there been like a push towards like more open working, or is it still sort of you're doing your own thing on your own computer, share it when it's finished? I think for me personally, more the latter, but I guess it's it's definitely, you definitely hear about people doing more open stuff yeah. more. So I, I guess maybe it's just a matter of time. In my experience, it was the latter as well. So um, it's also because my PhD was industrially funded. So um, oh, you can't just publish. So anything. you can't just, <laughs> unfortunately, that's not something I could do. Um, but it's definitely something that would have helped a lot um, because, yeah, having things publicly shared i think besides the fact that you're sharing knowledge it also helps you to improve your ways of working and um it's something that could be encouraged in general i think that given this uh data push that we're experiencing now um, academia in general should be better prepared for that so there should be better uh, not only stats um, better stats practices. There should also be better uh, software engineering practices. And it's actually it was something that I was discussing with Ed uh, privately a couple of days ago. Um, during my PhD, I felt that there were so many times that the PhD students were making codes, their own scripts for the same thing right, over yeah, and yeah, over yeah. again. Duplication of effort, yeah. And uh, instead of you know creating a repo where the students could upload their codes and that could be reused by you know future generations of phd students and that could be reviewed and improved um everything was kept like no one shared their code with anyone else unless you asked them privately and mm -hmm. maybe they you didn't even know that someone had created yeah. that specific script and that could have you know solved you a problem and saved you a lot of time mm -hmm. um those practices are not in place and i feel it's just because we're still at these early stages where um, you know, the the people who are managing uh, university in general are not used to, mm. to these ways of working yet. And uh, it's something that I hope with time will be implemented better. Yeah. I feel like for that you just need slightly different incentives um, because, the, yeah, the incentives aren't really set up for kind of, as a group, let's work out how we can most efficiently answer all these questions. It's much more kind of everyone get on with their own thing because you've got to produce papers in your own name. Um, yeah. 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 100%. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. This is. Um, yeah. The the idea that in science, like the 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 incentive at the moment is to publish rather than to find out stuff and do science, mm -hmm. and so that is a perverse incentive in that, like like it's literally it's literally a different goal. So they could be yeah. aligned. Like sometimes, like they will be aligned. Like doing good research means also publishing it. But other times it's like well. 
if a university group needs to get funding um, and they need to prove their worth to whoever's funding them, well, they, they better have some outputs. Mm. And if, they, if they're just sort of like, well, you know, we did this research and it's sort of on our website, mm. but it's not like published in a journal yet, that might yeah. look bad from like the perspective of them keeping their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, for instance, if you were setting up a biology department now and you were saying, I want this biology department to answer relevant uh, questions in an efficient way, how should I set it up? You'd probably not, I would have thought, have it so like grouped. You'd probably have, you know, as we're saying, the IT people, the stats people, and then people who do various things. And then some people who'd have oversight of like what questions we want to answer rather than um, this group does one thing, this group does another thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Just like siloed academic departments, mm, yeah, at yeah. the moment. Yeah, I, can, I can imagine as well, like, because you because you mentioned like there is this sort of mm. IT support we have, and mm. we're imagining this stats support support, mm. but also like just from a, a in a more informal way, there, I guess there could be more like networking between university yeah. scientists who are in the different departments. Like, so there'll be people who are like in a particular maths department, and I don't know what I don't know whether it comes down to if your particular university happens, you happen to share a building with them or something like, do you miss out on this like informal uh, knowledge sharing, which at the Alan Turing Institute we're very good at because <laughs> we all work in a central office, but it, looks, different... it looks like your office is really set up specifically to facilitate that. <laughs> it genuinely is. And it was like, the office was like, so we have an office in central London, uh, Kings Cross, and it was like redesigned after COVID. Mm. Um, for that in mind because we used to have some like set desks now it's all hot desking and yeah I remember the email going around they were like oh we've we've basically it's set up to maximize uh going for a coffee and having random sciencey chats with people so <laughs> but it's also because um a competitive environment is not encouraged which I think is not the case in academia in academia right. there is a competitive mm-hmm. environment um so I feel like a lot of there's there's always bad vibes between academics, I feel, at university. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's not between all of them, of course, but there's always that competition element to it. Yeah. And that sort of discourages, you know, positive collaboration yeah, and knowledge yeah, yeah. sharing. Yeah. And I, I feel that is a very big problem mm. in university still. But, but I, yeah, it's interesting because I, I don't know where like people come up with their ideas for like a scientific research project but presumably like the traditional structure is you have like a, a group leader who's just like is their agenda they're basically the king of the castle whereas I feel like here at least to a certain extent there's a lot of projects that will come about from people just sort of chatting to each other and being like oh yeah well we're like well this would be a thing that we could work on together and maybe we could apply for this funding if we team up and, and so on and so forth and I think, yeah, my my assumption would be that that's much more difficult in like traditional university where the biology department's in a different building to the maths department. But yeah, I don't know if we're going to manage to solve that <laughs> <laughs> that problem in the duration of this podcast. Um, it's uh, it's a. I think I think we've discussed actually a, a number of challenges. <laughs> <laughs> not not only one, not only the stats gap, but others as well. Yeah, I I, I think I don't. I would also say to any listeners, uh, don't be put off from working in science and academia. <laughs> I think people have good uh, good stories, and especially if you're interested in in like a particular particular area of research, then that's what you should do. Um, but yeah, there are there are 
there are other jobs available, such as research software engineer at the Alan Turing <laughs> Institute, <laughs> which is a nice one. Um, being sort of academic adjacent, but but not quite having the the perverse incentives that we've been discussing. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And I I really feel like we fit that uh, line in your in your article um, about you know people who like science but don't want to be yeah. experts in a very niche subject. I think that's what actually the research yeah, engineering group does not that much space for those people generally so not in academia not yeah. not really um we try to do that i mean part of our job is working with yeah possibly universities uh in you know helping them make better software better more robust research software um like the two projects i'm involved in are actually that so um we're, we kind of do that task, but we're not based within the university. Mm. And if the universities had their particular team that dealt with that, that would definitely help them a lot, in mm. my opinion. So, Cool. Uh, Ellen, I think we'll, we'll wrap up, but um, before we let you go, um, was there, is there anything else like about the stats gap um, you'd like to say, or do you have any... Uh, uh, are you online anywhere you would like people to follow? Um, <laughs> um, I guess maybe Twitter. Twitter. Um, what is your Twitter handle? Is uh, Pasta Snack E. Pasta Snack E. Awesome. Um, Twitter is, of course, the uh, chosen uh, platform of scientists, which uh, yeah. uh, was one thing I've definitely noticed. Twitter or LinkedIn, I think those are the two ones. You don't you don't tend to get science. Really? Well, maybe you do get sciencey Facebook posts. I don't know, but they're all yeah. They're not. I didn't realize people use LinkedIn that much. Really? Okay. I, yeah, in, I'm in, clearly in, out of the loop. In software, maybe not so much in academia, yeah. but definitely in software. Okay, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Twitter is was where the scientists are at, so yeah. Cool. Uh, well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Ellen. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The show is hosted by me, B. Costa Gomez, Ed Calstry, Joe Dungate, Christina Last, and Anika York. Music for this podcast is produced by Jam and Sun. You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram.